Hello everyone and a warm welcome back to The Real Normal Podcast. Your host here, Lord Rickmansworth, about to guide you through a little bit of a story that goes back in time. Before we do that, thanks ever so much for all the emails you guys are sending in. I'm going to read out one or two in the middle of this podcast today. But if you do want to send us an email, send it to therealnormalpodcast at gmail.com and by all means follow us on twitter as well at realnormalpod that's where we're fighting the fight at the moment we're doing something a little bit different to most people on twitter and rather than going into an echo chamber of people that we agree with as lovely as that may be we're actually following people who disagree with us or we disagree with and trying to have real adult reason debates about what's going on and backing that up with scientific proven facts as well and it is really really crazy the amount of of people who love lockdown zealously support it and just going absolutely crazy for it and hating us and saying that we want our family members to die and all that sort of thing but as soon as we come back to them with peer-reviewed proper scientific papers from people who are leading in their field on this subject they suddenly go quiet hopefully what they're doing is going away reading those scientific papers and then thinking hmm maybe i've got it wrong so my two colleagues don and midge are currently in their own homes at the moment funnily enough midge has got a little bit of a cold and you know what he's doing well you wouldn't believe it he's just staying at home and getting better well done why would anyone who had a little bit of a sniffle run to a testing center to desperately get tested what happened to laying in bed getting better and if you started to feel a lot worse ringing a doctor i mean that's how it used to happen isn't it so those guys we're having a zoom meeting with next week and i think what we're going to be doing is looking into testing but we're also going to be talking about the great barrington declaration and carl hennigan's proposed plan to the government to get us out of this problem is it feasible well listen next week to find out also before we begin could you please pop over to itunes and give us a five star rating there and tell all your mates share this podcast about guys the more people that realize that that niggly thought in the back of their head about this all being a bit off and they find this little podcast to listen to and they find lockdown skeptics to read the better so today's podcast is going to be a reading from the new york times and we're going back in time to january the 22nd 2007 what was i doing back then i can't remember probably just living life while pathogens flew around me at all times and no one gave a shit about the amount of people dying of flu every winter i mean it was january as well so i imagine the nhs were pretty much up to full capacity as they always are every winter and most of those complete saturdays were coming out of their dry january oh god why choose the worst month of the year to not get drunk so without further ado i'm going to read to you from this non-paywalled new york times piece by gina colata enjoy the epidemic that wasn't. Dr. Brooke Herndon, an internist at Dartford Hitchcock Medical Centre, could not stop coughing. For two weeks starting in mid-April last year, she coughed seemingly non-stop, followed by another week where she coughed sporadically, annoying, she said, everyone who worked with her. Before long, Dr Catherine Kirkland, an infectious disease specialist at Dartmouth, had a chilling thought. Could she be seeing the start of a whooping cough epidemic? Other healthcare workers at the hospital were coughing, and severe, intractable coughing is a whooping cough hallmark. And if it was whooping cough, the epidemic had to be contained immediately because the disease could be deadly to babies in the hospital and could lead to pneumonia in the frail and vulnerable adult patients there. 
It was the start of a very bizarre episode at the medical centre, the story of the epidemic that wasn't. For months, nearly everyone involved thought the medical centre had had a huge whooping cough outbreak with extensive ramifications. Nearly 1,000 healthcare workers at the hospital in Lebanon, New Hampshire, were given a preliminary test and furloughed from work until their results were in. 142 people, including Dr Herndon, were told they appeared to have the disease, and thousands were given antibiotics and a vaccine for protection. Hospital beds were taken out of commission, including some in intensive care. Then, about eight months later, healthcare workers were dumbfounded to receive an email message from the hospital administration informing them that the whole thing was a false alarm. Not a single case of whooping cough was confirmed with the definitive test growing their bacterium Bordetella pertussis in the laboratory. Instead, it appears the healthcare workers probably were afflicted with ordinary respiratory diseases like the common cold. Now, as they look back at the episode, epidemiologists and infectious disease specialists say that the problem was that they placed too much faith in a quick and highly sensitive molecular test that led them astray. Infectious disease experts say such tests are coming into increasing use and may be the only way to get a quick answer in diagnosing diseases like whooping cough, legionnaires, bird flu, tuberculosis and SARS and deciding whether an epidemic is underway. There are no national data on pseudoepidemics caused by an over-reliance on such molecular tests, said Dr Trish M. Pearl, an epidemiologist at John Hopkins and the past president of the Society of Healthcare Epidemiologists of America. But, she said, pseudoepidemics happen all the time. The Dartmouth case may have been one of the largest, but it was by no means an exception, she said. There was a similar whooping cough scare at a children's hospital in Boston last fall that involved 36 adults and two children. Definitive tests, though, did not find pertussis. It's a problem. We know it's a problem, Dr Pearl said. My guess is that what happened at Dartmouth is going to become more common. Many of the new molecular tests are quick but technically demanding, and each laboratory may do them in its own way. These tests, called homebrews, are not commercially available, and there are no good estimates of their error rates, but their very sensitivity makes false positives likely, and when hundreds or thousands of people are tested, as occurred at Dartmouth, false positives can make it seem like there is an epidemic. You're in a little bit of no man's land with the new molecular tests, said Dr Mark Perkins, an infectious disease specialist and chief scientific officer at the Foundation for Innovative New Diagnostics, a non-profit foundation supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. All bets are off on exact performance. Of course, that leads to the question of why rely on them at all. At face value, obviously they shouldn't be doing it, Dr Pearl said. But, she said, often when answers are needed and an organism like the pertussis bacterium is finicky and hard to grow in a laboratory, you don't have great options. Waiting to see if the bacteria grow can take weeks, but the quick molecular test can be wrong. It's almost like you're trying to pick the least of two evils, Dr Pearl said. At Dartmouth, 
the decision was to use a test, PCR, for polymerase chain reaction. It is a molecular test that, until recently, was confined to molecular biology laboratories. That's kind of what's happening, said Dr. Catherine Edwards, an infectious disease specialist and professor of paediatrics at Vanderbilt University. That's the reality out there. We are trying to figure out how to use methods that have been the purview of bench scientists. The Dartmouth whooping cough story shows what can ensue. To say the episode was disruptive was an understatement, said Dr Elizabeth Tolbert, Deputy State Epidemiologist for the New Hampshire Department of Health and Human Services. You cannot imagine, Dr Talbot said, I had a feeling at the time that this gave us a shadow of a hint of what it might be like during a pandemic flu epidemic. Yet, epidemiologists say one of the most troubling aspects of the pseudo-epidemic is that all of the decisions seemed so sensible at the time. Dr Katrina Kretzinger, a medical epidemiologist at the Federal Centre for Disease Control and Prevention, who worked on the case along with her colleague Dr Manisha Patel, does not fault the Dartmouth doctors. The issue was not that they overreacted or did anything inappropriate at all, Dr Kretzinger said. Instead, it is that there is no way to decide early on whether an epidemic is underway. Before the 1940s, when pertussis vaccine for children was introduced, whooping cough was a leading cause of death in young children. The vaccine led to an 80% drop in the disease's incidence, but did not completely eliminate it. That is because the vaccine's effectiveness wanes after about a decade, and although there is now a new vaccine for adolescents and adults, it is only starting to come into use. Whooping cough, Dr Kretzinger said, is still a concern. The disease got its name from its most salient feature. Patients may cough and cough and cough until they have to gasp for a breath. The coughing can last for so long that one of the common names for whooping cough was the 100-day cough, Dr Talbot said. But neither coughing long and hard nor even whooping is unique to pertussis infections. And many people with whooping cough can have symptoms like those of the common cold, a runny nose or an ordinary cough. Almost everything about the clinical presentation of pertussis, especially early pertussis, is not very specific, Dr Kirkland said. That was the first problem in deciding whether there was an epidemic at Dartmouth. The second was the PCR, the quick test to diagnose the disease, Dr Kretzinger said. With pertussis, she said, there are probably a hundred different PCR protocols and methods being used throughout the country, and it is unclear how often any of them are accurate. We have had a number of outbreaks where we believe that despite the presence of PCR positive results, the disease was not pertussis, Dr Kretzinger added. At Dartmouth, when the first suspect pertussis case emerged and the PCR test showed pertussis, doctors believed it. The results seemed completely consistent with the patient's symptoms. That's how the whole thing got started, Dr Kirtland said. Then the doctors decided to test people who did not have severe coughing. Because we had cases we thought were pertussis, and because we had vulnerable patients at hospital, we lowered our threshold. Anyone who had a cough got a PCR test, and so did anyone with a runny nose who worked with high-risk patients like infants. That's how we ended up with 134 suspect cases, Dr Kirtland said. And that, she added, is why 1,445 healthcare workers ended up taking antibiotics and 4,524 healthcare workers at the hospital, or 72% of all the healthcare workers there, were immunised against whooping cough in a matter of days. If we had stopped there, I think we would have all agreed that we had had an outbreak of pertussis and that we had controlled it, Dr Kirtland said. 
but epidemiologists at the hospital and working for the states of New Hampshire and Vermont decided to take extra steps to confirm that what they were seeing was really pertussis. The Dartmouth doctors sent samples from 27 patients they thought had pertussis to the state health department and the Centers for Disease Control. There, scientists tried to grow the bacteria, a process that can take weeks. Finally, they had the answer. There was no pertussis in any of the samples. We thought, well, that's odd, Dr Kirtland said. Maybe it's the timing or the culturing, maybe it's the transport problem. Why don't we try serological testing? Certainly, after a pertussis infection, a person should develop antibodies to the bacteria. They could only get suitable blood samples from 39 patients. The others had gotten the vaccine, which itself elicits pertussis antibodies. But then the Centers for Disease Control tested those 39 samples. Its scientists reported that only one showed increases of antibody levels indicative of pertussis. The disease center did additional tests too, including molecular tests to look for features of the pertussis bacteria. Its scientists also did additional PCR tests on samples from 116 of the 134 people who were thought to have had whooping cough. Only one PCR was positive. But other tests did not show that that person was infected with pertussis bacteria. The disease centre also interviewed patients in depth to see what their symptoms were and how they evolved. It was going on for months, Dr Kirkland said, but in the end the conclusion was clear. There was no pertussis epidemic. We were all somewhat surprised, Dr Kirkland said, and we were left in a very frustrating situation about what to do when the next outbreak comes. Dr Kathy A. Petty, an infectious disease specialist at the University of Utah, said the story had one clear lesson. The big message is that every lab is vulnerable to having false positives, Dr Petty said. No single test result is absolute, and that is even more important with a test result based on PCR. As for Dr Hernan, though, she now knows she is off the hook. I thought I might have caused an epidemic, she said. So some really interesting messages there from that piece in the New York Times in 2007. And I'll leave a link to this piece in the description of this podcast as well. I would have read that out in next week's podcast with the gang here. But I thought it was actually a better idea because it's quite a long piece to keep it within its own podcast. So you can share it with people who talk about PCR and actually refer them to this story to say, look... PCR testing is not the be-all and end-all. It's dangerous. We need to actually have another test, a more accurate test, to diagnose whether someone has COVID-19 accurately or not. Because I think what we're seeing happening at the moment in this country is an over-reliance on PCR, an over-reliance on calling someone who's tested positive a case. I mean, if you've got no symptoms whatsoever, how can you be called a case? So share this podcast around, share the link around to the New York Times piece. We've got an email here from Ian Hannay. He says, Dear all, thanks for the podcast. I found a link to you on Toby Young's Lockdown Skeptics and listened to your number 11 podcast while walking on the heli deck on a rig off Vietnam. Blimey. I subscribe to Dellingpod, good lad. Mike Graham's Talk Radio, excellent. The Thought Police by Mike Graham and Kevin O'Sullivan, which I've not actually listened to, so I might check that out. Plank of the Week by Mike Graham, which all give me a respite from the woke new normal blather, which is the mainstream media offerings today. 
while I don't consider myself particularly intelligent, <laughs> don't do that to yourself, mate, I certainly consider myself able to distinguish waffle and bullshit dressed up as news for the masses as just that. I can't watch any TV these days. When I'm at home, my wife asks me to sit with her to watch a series of Netflix or similar. After only a short period of watching, I become annoyed at the obvious distortion of facts and misleading information which is used by our showbiz feckless idiots. Anyway, it is I who is waffling now. Yeah, you are. You're going off the point there, Ian. My point in writing this email to you is that I wanted to thank you for your podcast, which offers an alternative to the herd media pronouncements of doom. Your podcast has a light touch of humour. Thank you very much which despite the seriousness of the subject works well you should have a listen to the Delling pod which we do with dr mike yeed and guys that is an insanely good podcast that one um the Delling pod with dr mike yeed and just type it in now guys find it listen to it it's an hour and 50 minutes long and it will make you feel so much better about your chances of surviving this disease which are very very high um, but it might make you feel a little bit worse about what is going on in our political establishment at the moment but anyway i'll continue with ian's email dr mike has many of the answers which i've been looking for about the current pandemic his most memorable quote is convergent opportunism which exactly describes the method of the various groups who have hitched their bandwagon to the pandemic runaway freight train of fear and panic i have a week before your next podcast so we'll work backwards on your previous podcast to keep me occupied on my daily helidate walks thanks again keep up the good work ian don't listen back too far because the first few episodes were shit (laughs) it only got good when i got the lads involved so there you go ian thanks ever so much for sending that in mate and guys remember you can email us at the real normal podcast at gmail.com Tell us your stories about how you've defied wearing a mask. We'll keep your anonymity if you want us to. Tell us what it was like going on a protest if you've been on one. Or tell us about some of the mad things you've seen during this pandemic, during this second ridiculous lockdown. We'd love to hear from you and we'd love to read them out on this podcast as well. Telling other people that they're not alone in feeling that this is mad. Anyway, thanks ever so much for listening to this podcast, guys. I'll see you in the next podcast when I'm with the gang, back with Don and Midge, when we're going to be talking about Carl Hennigan's plan to get us out of this shit show situation that we're in at the moment. Is it feasible? Well, come back next week to find out. See you soon, guys. Stay safe.